Welcome to The Practice Podcast, a show created by lawyers to help lawyers in life and business without all the complicated lawyer language. Let's welcome Bast Amron founders and your hosts, Jeff Bast and Brett Amron. Hi, Jeff. How are hey, you? Hey, Brett. How are you? I am, uh, I am well, and you? Fantastic. Wow. January, we're recording this on January 30th. I can't believe that it's going to be February in a couple of days. Well, don't I mean, I believe it. It's just too far ahead. Let's enjoy January 30th. Well, by the time people are listening to this, it's It'll going be to be February. February. I know. Yeah. I know. And I just feel like we just celebrated New Year's, but life is good. It's a beautiful day outside in sunny South Florida. Some it's, might say it's brisk. It's cold, well, but sunny. And cold. Cold relative. Come on. It's cold. What is it? 50s? It's pretty cold today. Okay. All right. Anyway, Brett, what are you reading these days? Are you reading? What are you reading right now? At this very second, or like books that I'm come reading. on. So I am still making my way through Outlive by Dr. Peter Atia or Atia. Atia, yeah. And I just bought a, a book that I haven't started yet. It is about that basically midlife is an opportunity, not a crisis. Ooh, I like that. How about I you? I look what forward to learning from you on uh, when you embark on Your that. Your birthday journey. is coming. My birthday is coming. Yes, that <laughs> yeah. is true. What is it that you are reading? I'm reading We Are the Weather by Jonathan, and I always butcher his name, Safra Fora, Saffron Fourier, something like that. He's great. He wrote Eating Animals, and this is a great one. It's about climate, but also about really about the struggle to deal mm-hmm. with climate, why it's such an impossible challenge. So that's like really to, cool. I'd like to, I'd like to read it's really book. cool. That'd be an interesting I like book, it. I think. Anyway, we have a visitor today. Maybe we should uh, wait, wake her up first. Ask her what she's reading. But <laughs> let's wake her right. up first. Our visitor today is Donna DiMaggio Berger. She is a shareholder at Becker in Fort Lauderdale. She specializes in community association law. Donna is a board-certified condominium and plan development law specialist, and she is a College of Community Association Lawyers member. As the founder and executive director of Becker's Community Association Leadership Lobby, acronym CALL, she advocates for common interest ownership communities at the legislative level. Donna also hosts the podcast, and I was a guest on this show, called Take It to the Board, which delves into the complexities of living in residential associations, board service, and the delicate balance between legal compliance and community spirit. I want to hear about that. We're going to hang a lantern on that one. She's also received honors from Florida Trends Legal Elite, South Florida Business Leader, and the 100 Outstanding Women of Broward County. And Donna is committed to pro bono service. She has served as the pro bono legal advisor for the Broward Coalition, and she's also a board member of the American Lung Association of Florida. Welcome, Donna. Thanks so much for having me here. I do have to laugh about your initial conversation that it's cold out. I mean, I grew up in Chicago. This is not even brisk. Wow. Okay. This is shorts and tank top weather. I, lo- I love, by the way, you're my new favorite guest. I mean, uh, immediately called him out. I mean, that's I, wow. I'm okay with it. I, I'm a good. Florida like boy. That. I'm a Florida it boy. Came it's out cold. Swinging. Came out swinging. <laughs> it is cold out there. I don't care. So, anyway, I love it. I love when the uh, when the, the weather the comes. weather is beautiful. It really is. The rest of the country is bundled up, and we are still outside. Some people in shorts and enjoying beautiful weather. So, Donna, what are you reading? Are you reading something now? 
Are you a reader? I, you know, I, I was listening. So I'm reading, I have multiple books I read at a time, but right now I'm reading The Asters by Anderson Cooper. Oh, I don't wow. know if you read his other book, The yeah. Vanderbilts, based on his family. His family. And yeah. I'm reading The Asters. It's fascinating mm-hmm. about how this family started in the fur trade, wow. John Jacob Astor. So I'm reading that book. And I also just started The Courage to Be Disliked. It's a business book, and I'm part of a reading club, um, Chris Dwyer's reading club, and this is our next book. So right, say that one more time, The Courage to Be Disliked. The Courage to Be Disliked. It's a Japanese author. I'm getting set to leave for a cruise, and I can just imagine me sitting at the pool with a book in front of me that says The Courage to Be Disliked, but yeah. that's on our reading club, our book club list, so that's what I'm reading right I, now. I like that title. I love it. I'm usually reading New Yorker magazine, and right now I'm probably in the middle of five different articles. Like every different room in my house has a New Yorker open to the page where I am. So, But I really enjoy reading a book as well. Anyway, Donna, let's talk about you and your practice. Tell us, how'd you become a condominium lawyer? So I did not think about condo law in law school. It was not on my radar. I had thought about being a real estate attorney and there obviously condo and HOA law does fall within that category, but it really happened after I graduated and I had my first child, my son, I had been working in downtown Miami at a small boutique banking law firm. And at that point, I was like, I don't know if I want to keep going down to Miami and commuting. I lived in Aventura at the time, and I was really looking for something maybe flexible. Uh, And out of the blue, I was contacted by the firm that I'm at now, Becker and Polyakoff, and they said, hey, we have a flex time program, and would you like to come in? And I came in, and I met with the founding partner, Gary Polyakoff, at that time, and he said, well, um, you know about condos, right? And I thought, sure, I'll read the statute. How hard can it be? You know, 718, not a problem. And, you know, here I am all these years later. It's a lot more nuanced representation than I would have initially believed. But I definitely tell my son, Ryan, it's because of him that I have made my career representing condominiums and homeowners associations. So we've done, dabbled with associations either indirectly as creditors in a bankruptcy or in litigation or yeah, even we represent, representing we represent uh, a couple in bankruptcy. A couple right? in bankruptcy, right. Yeah. The model itself is just it can sort of bring out some difficulties in terms of communication and representation with a condominium association, particularly when it's people who may not have ever sat in a position of authority and people are sort of foisted into these positions or want to think they want to. How do you sort of bridge that gap and help yourself and help the association kind of deal with some of the really hard issues when there may be some of those communication problems, I'll put it that way. Let me first start by saying I used to always say that associations, this practice of law is really recession proof because associations, for the most part, Mm -hmm. they do business in good times or bad. I mean, their focus switches, but they really don't typically roll up shop, right? If we're in the midst of a recession, then their focus is more collecting delinquent assessments, perhaps suing vendors. If we're in boom times, it's, you know, they're focusing on enforcing their documents. So in terms of the practice of law, I really see association law as fairly recession proof. We don't really see that many associations file for bankruptcy protection. It's one of the reasons I wanted to have Jeff on my podcast is because now in the aftermath of Surfside, 
and the milestone inspection requirements and the mandatory funding for structural integrity components, combined with the insurance crisis in Florida, we're seeing association budgets just explode. And that, what does that mean? That means more assessments on the owners. From your perspective, I can 100% understand the difficulty in who are you taking direction from when it comes to an association? The answer is the board of directors. I go out to a lot of meetings and somebody will inevitably stand up a member and say, well, wait a second, you represent the association. I'm a member of the association. You have to listen to me. You have to take direction from me as an owner. Well, it doesn't really work that way. It's a corporation. 99% of them are corporations, not for profit. Occasionally, we'll see a for-profit Delaware corporation slip in for a cooperative here and there. But like most corporate representation, we take direction from the board of directors, right? They're the ones that create the policy. The managers implement the policy. And as counsel, when they reach out to us, we advise them. I will say it's an episodic representation. We are not sitting in the building like in-house counsel advising on everything. We don't know if there's a problem unless they pick up the phone and they contact us. So it does this type of representation of community associations does have some inherent challenges because, again, we're representing a corporation, but we're not in-house counsel. It is an episodic representation because the board may not pick up the phone and contact us. I will tell you, I'll give you a really quick example. I had a board a couple months back, manager called and it was they were asking a fairly innocuous question about their annual meeting. I got a call later that afternoon from a local building official saying we need the building to be evacuated because a vehicle ran into it last week and there was a death, a fatality. And I'm thinking, <laughs> the manager just literally called me three hours ago, never mentioned the fatality, never mentioned the vehicle driving into the building. And then, you know, because it was a four unit building and that it needed to be evacuated. So there are challenges when it comes to communication. <laughs> Yeah, when you say episodic, I suppose that means an episode occurred, <laughs> something, something happened. Happens, right, right. And usually they uh, consult you either too late, at, well, obviously after the fact, it's already happened, the episode has occurred. And so your uh, approach must be damage control, I suppose. We try to be very proactive. I sent out a lot of from the desk of messaging during the pandemic. I sent out a lot, as did my colleagues here at Becker, advising people of the various emergency orders. We do that whenever a hurricane's coming and the governor has declared a state of emergency. We've got a lot of resources out there. So you do try to be proactive. But the example I just gave shows you that, you know, you would think that that's a fairly significant episode that a client would have thought, you know, maybe we should pick up the phone and call counsel and find out what we need to do here. Sometimes it happens. Sometimes it doesn't. Listen, there's millions of people serving on these community association boards throughout the country. We have like 60,000 plus associations in Florida alone. A significant percentage of the population in Florida is living in these communities and serving on these boards. And I mean, as you guys know, there's a wide disparity among the skill sets that people bring when they come and agree to serve as a volunteer board member. So I think Surfside, we'll talk about yeah. Surfside in a minute. Um, I was thinking we should explain that because uh, some people listening may right. not. I, I do want to ask you to explain that and what happened and, and obviously how the condo board was involved there or the relation there with the condo board and everything. One of the things that I'm curious about is how you as counsel deal with a situation that 
seemed to have percolated, at least from what I heard, I obviously wasn't involved with Surside, which is when you have a board, there are certain people from a financial perspective who are saying, ah, I don't want to spend any money on the building because it's just, I'm not going to get it back, right? Like from a financial perspective, I either rent a unit out to people I own it, I rent it out, or it just doesn't make sense, or I don't have the money and so I can't, I don't want there to be an assessment. How do you deal with those issues when you're representing a board? It's our job as association council to advise the board what the requirements are under the pertinent statutes, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And under the administrative code, and we'll look at the body of case law in Florida, which is fairly robust for the over the last five decades. So that's our job. Here's the issue though. Again, a lot of times you've got boards working with their management team. And the council's really outside the loop altogether. And sometimes they're looking to the management team to answer questions, which is really problematic if they're legal questions. I would say if the question is, is there liability if that's a question you should be bringing to council. But here's the issue. You've got to look at the statute. And over the years, let's take condominiums, for example. Florida Condominium Act has said that the members have the right to waive reserves or partially fund them. So the power really is in the hands of the membership. If you don't want that, then you need to take away the ability of members to be potentially fiscally irresponsible, right? You mentioned it. We call them the green banana crowd, right? I don't buy green bananas. I don't know if I'm going to be around until they ripen. It's that mentality that why do I want to put aside money? But I also think this goes back decades when developers marketed these buildings on the coast as your affordable slice of paradise, right? Oh, you can't afford a big house, but you can afford a condo unit right on the beach. It's affordable. It's turnkey. None of those things are true. You are situated in a very geographically vulnerable area, and it takes a lot of ongoing maintenance to keep that building up. And then, of course, the laws change over the decades. So why don't we take that opportunity just to explain when we're talking about Surfside, because some of our listeners are not in South Florida. They may not know what we're talking about. What are we talking about when we say Surfside? We are talking about the tragic event of the Champlain Tower South Collapse that occurred two years ago, and 98 people lost their lives in that collapse. There was a ton of media coverage about it. There was a lawsuit that has been settled. There's ongoing conversations about what's going to happen with the property. And of course, there were a variety of different theories about what brought down that building. As a result, I will tell you the first legislative session following Surfside, we call it the Surfside or or CTS collapse, the legislature did not pass a single safety reform. They were then called into special session and they passed the bill, which was Senate Bill 4D, which changed significantly a lot of things. Prior to Champlain Towers, that building collapsing, there were only two out of 67 counties in Florida that required older buildings to go through what's called a certification process, which means get an engineer out, look at the building and say that the building's been maintained properly or the building needs certain repairs, usually concrete repairs, sometimes roof, things like that. After Senate Bill 4D was passed, that now became a statewide requirement that what's called threshold buildings, three stories or higher, need to be periodically inspected by engineers. And also that associations need to fund reserves to pay for this because the thought was that the reason associations don't maintain their buildings is because they don't put aside money. 
I can tell you, though, from experience, that's not always the case. Sometimes there's plenty of money put aside and they're still not maintaining the building. So very often there is a disconnect in terms of what we think the problem is and what the solution is going to be and what's really happening. So there was a change, right, in the timeline for certification. My understanding is it used to be every 40 years for certification in the counties that had it. And now statewide, did they change that time frame? Yeah, it used to be a 40-year certification and then every 10 years thereafter, okay? Now it's the same thing. It's 10 years thereafter, but there's a deadline for threshold buildings, which is December 31st, 2024, to have what's called the milestone inspection. There's Mm -hmm. two phases to that. There's a visual phase. Mm -hmm. If there's no significant structural weakness or deficiency, you're done. But if the engineer does detect that there's some substantial or significant structural weakness, then you move on to phase two. So they didn't change the time period from 40 to 20. I know there was some conversation about that, but they didn't do that. It's still 40 years, but for any building that was already past the 40 year, they required them to do it by the end of 2024. The certification is that. No, it's been a while. It's actually been a while since I looked at that. No, that's okay. (laughs) I'm just curious. I'm curious about that. And then you said the other changes. Are they requiring reserves now? So they. That's also and for any budget that's passed after December 31st, 2024. Mm -hmm. And again, if this is a a threshold building, which is three stories or higher, you will need to have what's called SERS, a structural integrity reserve study, and you will need to have reserves four structural components, roof, painting, waterproofing, electrical, HVAC, things like that, structural columns. I mean, it's a really, first of all, it's a horrible tragedy, but really important lessons I think were learned. But I'm really curious about that whole idea that now there's a mandate of some level of reserves, but your suggestion was that a lot of these condos had money and they just didn't want to spend it. And I'm curious how a U.S. council manage that struggle where you know that a group of homeowners has to make a decision to spend money on something that maybe the residents aren't going to see. You know, when you repair the roof, nobody goes home and go, God, this new roof is great. It feels so secure. And I just think that's a really a tough challenge. It must be a tough challenge for you. Well, that is, so that is the challenge because it's not sexy to spend money on a generator, right? Right. It's not sexy to spend money on electricity or plumbing or any of that stuff, right? It's just so much more fun to redo the lobby or the landscaping or something people see. But what's driving that many times is the owners, okay? Sometimes it's the boards, but sometimes a lot of times it's the owners who want to see that. But again, Jeff, here's the issue. We're not going to know that as association council. So a lot of times the board is not calling or the manager is not calling and saying, hey, we want to prioritize a cosmetic project over repairs. Do you think that's a good idea? (laughs) I don't know any association attorney is going to go, yeah, you have limited resources. Absolutely, you should do that. But of course, I think most clients know that they don't want to ask a question that they don't want to know the answer to. So they're just (laughs) doing what they're doing, right? And then when they get into a fix is when we hear from them. And that's where the management company might come in more than the attorney in that instance is what you're talking about. Bingo. Yep. And many of them are quite good. Many of the management companies are quite good at saying, you need to pick up the phone and get a legal opinion. Some are not, but many are quite good at that. So in the wake of Surfside, are you seeing more of your clients changing their policies or their procedures and how they're sort of dealing with repairs and certifications and reserves, regardless of the law and like whatever it is? Have you seen those changes? 
Yeah, I've actually been really happy to see that so many of them have been proactive. Because remember, there's a there's a 24, end of 24, many of them have already done their milestone inspections. Mm-hmm. You know, as soon as the law changed, they were worried about supply and demand when it comes to the available engineers and the available reserve companies. So many of them have already completed their milestone inspections. They've already got their structural integrity reserve studies. What I think one of the most beneficial outcomes from that legislation, because there was SB4D and then last session was a glitch bill, 154, is that for so many of these communities, they had never hired a reserve study before. They'd never commissioned one. So where were they getting the numbers on the estimated remaining useful life on the roof for the painting? Well, sometimes it was just Ted, the treasurer, who was like coming up with these numbers. Sometimes they were talking to their local roofer. I think it's much better to have that safety net of a reserve study, a professional reserve study. And I talk to boards a lot about their safety nets. I'll say to them, what are you relying upon? Because are you flying solo or are you asking for a legal opinion? Are you contacting professional advisors? Are you using an engineer? If an owner comes to them with an interior construction project, right? Like many of these older buildings, people are buying and then they're gutting the unit. Are the board members and manager trying to determine if the construction going on inside that unit is going to impact the overall structural integrity Mm. or are they hiring an engineer to do that? Great points. There's so much complexity to your practice. It seems, I think a lot of people say that about our practice, bankruptcy, but, and commercial litigation, but I think yours has this additional layer of anytime you're dealing with a group of individuals, it's just challenging to make a decision. I mean, I think a husband and wife have challenges in making decisions about whether to re- replace the dishwasher. But here you got a whole, a whole building with a group of people who are volunteers, volunteering for the job that all presumably have other day jobs. And now they, uh, they have to decide to spend money on something that may not be so popular, really. Tough stuff. I know there's been some changes in the law and some changes in mindset and stuff. I mean, I feel like Florida has maybe more more condo associations than most states, but maybe not. Maybe that's just the perception. That's a good question. Yeah, do, you, do you know the answer? Yeah. To that? Yeah. yeah uh, I think we're, the top three is Florida, California, and Texas. I yeah, think really. last time I checked, yeah, we're, we're right. right up there, and we have the most bloated. <laughs> shared ownership statutes in terms of trying to figure out what the statute says. Our condominium act, I think is the largest, longest in terms of any a shared ownership statute in the country. Wow. I think by comparison, Montana or Wyoming might have a two page statute. I think <laughs> wow. ours is approaching 200 pages. Yeah. So I bet not a lot of condos in Montana or Wyoming. Do you see anything coming down the pike future, any changes or anything of how just sort of given what we see in terms of the explosion of population and maybe uh, some urban core getting reinvigorated, more buildings, things like that? Well, do I see changes in terms of people wanting to live in older buildings? I will tell you, I do see a trend in that. I think you're going to see more terminations of condominiums and and see buildings torn down and new buildings go up. I think buildings themselves have a finite lifespan. That's probably a good question to ask if you have a developer on your podcast is what really is the lifespan of a building in an area like Florida along the coast? So I think you're going to see more of that. I think the idea that living in a multifamily building along the coast is affordable is gone. So I think it's going to be for very wealthy people who can afford the assessments needed to maintain that as a housing option. 
And of course, you know, I talked with guests on my show about affordable housing crisis in Florida. So I think you'll see more local ordinances requiring developers to put in some affordable housing in their mix. And I see that I, ha- I represent a couple communities in Delray mm-hmm. and they have affordable housing in the homeowners associations. So they're required to have a certain percentage of their units set aside. So I think that there has to be some movement in that direction because where are all the people who are working in our restaurants and working in our retail and working in our entertainment venues? Where are these folks going to live as housing becomes more expensive in Florida? Yeah, it's a big challenge. The housing affordability, I think nationwide it is, but it's particularly uh, we're seeing it in South Florida. So the other thing is, is that a lot of people, we've got a lot of investor owners in properties, particularly in Miami-Dade, in the Keys, even up in the Panhandle. We've got a lot. I think investors need to start understanding that their return on investment when you're purchasing a condominium or even a home, in a home, when you're doing it in an association, there are certain things out of your control. This may not be the best investment, particularly in an older building. So a lot of times when we talk, this kind of brings it full circle about the people who are saying, I don't want to spend money on that. A lot of times it's the investors because that cuts into their returns, right? And so they're saying, I don't want to put money into this. I have allocated this much in terms of what I'm willing to spend on this investment vehicle. Maybe it's time to rethink whether or not buying in a condominium association or cooperative is the best investment vehicle because there are variables that are out of your hands and you're subject to the whims of the majority of the membership and the board you get. Yeah, Yeah. and I would say that even in that instance, if they still want to, then perhaps the ROI could be greater if they put more money in or allocate more money to maintenance and upkeep and because the value is only going to continue to go up, right? So if you let a building or a particular unit go into disrepair, it's going to be worth less. So when they're doing their ROI calculations, like you said, if A, you're still interested in a condo, then B, factor in wanting to put more money and perhaps getting a bigger return on the backside. Well, more long-term thinking would be great across the board. I think we can can apply that in a lot of places. (laughs) More long-term thinking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, And I guess it's definitely more expensive to be a condominium owner nowadays in South Florida, would you say that it's safer? Well, that's the goal, to come out of this with the safest housing stock in the country. Wouldn't that be a great thing? I mean, listen, there's bills we're tracking right now in Tallahassee, though, that will extend these deadlines. So we see this happen time and again, (laughs) where they're very reactive to a problem. But then over time, as I don't know who's talking to them in their ears, they kind of back off a little bit. Or again, amnesia sets in. So I don't know. It remains to be seen. But now there's some there's some legislation out there that will that will kick the ball down the field a little bit. Mm. And uh, I don't know if that's going to pass. That would be unfortunate. So we need some longer term thinking and some longer term memory as well, because we do tend to have short memories. I enjoyed this, Donna. This was really informative. As did I. Thank you. And entertaining and educational. Illuminating. Wow. (laughs) I feel inspired. I could keep going. Anyway, if you enjoyed the show anywhere near as much as I did, please subscribe, share the show, leave a review. Subscribing to the show and leaving a review will help others find the show and it helps us grow and devote more time and produce better content for you and have amazing guests like Donna. Donna, thank you very much. Thanks so much, guys. Thank you, Donna. Thank you. No. I want to thank you for just for being my partner. 
You're welcome. Nelson, thank you. Thanks, Nelson. For more information on this show and other resources, visit FastAmron.com and connect with us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram at FastAmron.com.